0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 13. Our text today will be John chapter 13, verses 18 to 30. You know, One of the great claims of our Lord to demonstrate his deity, demonstrate who he is, is in the fact of fulfilled prophecy that the things that the lord says they come to pass which proves him to be who he claims to be we see a lot of that within the old testament we also see much of that within the new testament as well that when jesus makes certain claims he is he is demonstrating that when they come to pass it will be a vindication of him claiming to be who he was that's actually very similar uh, just as an example to that of matthew 24 and we're very familiar with Matthew 24 when Jesus talks about in the first half of Matthew 24 of all the things that are going to take place leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. You're going to have wars and rumors of wars and nation rising against nation and, and false Christ, and, and earthquakes and famines and all of this that is leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. These are signs to look for leading up to this, this event where the temple will once again be uh, desolated, be brought to the ground, as he says in verse 15 of Matthew 24, that when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, and those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Luke actually adds, when you see Jerusalem encompassed about with an army, then flee to the mountains. This is exactly what had happened in 70 AD. When the Romans came in, they circled Jerusalem, they began to siege the city. And then they were called back to Rome. And as Josephus records, there was not one Christian within the city whenever they came back and sieged the city for three and a half years until they finally came in. This was all prophesied by our Lord. He said actually at the end of Matthew 23, <clears throat> as he is indicting the religious leaders, in verse 34 he says, Therefore, Behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then he mourns over Jerusalem Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her? How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, for I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the Lord goes over these particular things in the first half of Matthew 24 as the disciples come to him and ask him, When are these things going to take place when Jesus says not one stone will be left upon another? So as Jesus is disclosing these things to them, and once it comes to pass, then that will be an evidence that he was who he claimed to be. This happens a number of different times, and specifically in our text, it's going to be with the betrayal of Judas. As Jesus prophesies something that is getting ready to come to pass, and it does come to pass, that demonstrates his deity. So throughout this passage, that's exactly what he's doing. He's demonstrating his sovereignty. He's demonstrating his deity. And yet you see the humanity of our Lord Jesus in all of this as well as this passage goes over the betrayal of Judas. Some amazing things that you see here, even to the very outset to the very end before Judas leaves the kindness of our Lord even toward him throughout all of that the, the, the stirring in Jesus' spirit knowing that a friend is getting ready to betray him these are uh, aspects of his humanity that is put on display for us now we can see that he didn't grow bitter he didn't do any of those things but he kept showing kindness to him until the moment when it was when it was done there was no more and what a great lesson that that is. This isn't an enemy, a known enemy, who is getting ready to betray him. If we, knew, if we have enemies that are getting ready to betray us, it's one thing to expect it. Yeah, this is going to happen. Not to say that this came uh, to Jesus unexpect- unexpectedly. He knew it was coming, of course. But we need to, what I'm saying by that is, is to understand that this is someone who had assumed the role of a believer, who was trusted by the rest of them, who had established a relationship, this is a friend who is getting ready to betray him. And yet, even knowing all of these things, he continued to show kindness to him rather than growing bitter. You know, with anything in the scripture, our Lord leaves us such a great example for us to follow. And often what we read in the scripture is the complete opposite of what we ourselves would normally do. If we knew someone was getting ready to betray us, especially one considered to be a friend, then our reaction to them will be very harsh, will be much anger, bitterness. But our Lord doesn't do that. Sometimes it's it's, it's difficult to, to see these passages because we want to do the opposite. We want to respond in a different way, and we wish the Lord would have responded in a different way. But he didn't. And this is the example that is set for us. Is that of continuing to show kindness even to our enemies. Even when we want perhaps to do otherwise. Not only that, but in the exchange that you find as Jesus announces to his disciples that one is getting ready to betray him. You see some very interesting things that, that in the way that they respond, it's a demonstration that their unity that they have with each other is grounded in having unity with him and having a relationship with him which is which is the very essence of what a church is a church is a gathered people a called out people that what unites us together and what helps us to have that fellowship and that love for one another is our love for Christ that's the centrality of our fellowship that was the centrality of their fellowship as well and much we can learn in that so let's let's jump into this passage and May the Lord adhere this to our hearts and may the Lord change our hearts in response to those who would harm us and betray us. These things are inevitably going to happen. Jesus would tell the disciples. uh, Actually, I don't want to jump ahead there, but in verse 20, he identifies the disciples in the same manner of what he went through. They too will showing that connection and that closeness and it's inevitable. It's going to happen. But in the way that we respond, even though it may seem ridiculous to the world, it is, some, it is another means that we can honor the one who saved us. Let's look at this passage together in John chapter 13, beginning of verse 18 through verse 30. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and words of the living God. Beginning verse 18, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another, at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, Who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing because Judas had the money box... That, Judas was, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we humbly come into your presence. And Father, we, we seek your wisdom. We seek to understand this portion of scripture to the best of our ability that by the Spirit of God we may put it into practice and how we need Him to supply the strength in order to do these things. For we are weak and we are feeble and we need Him in order to help us to do what is right. Father, let us see the example that Christ has left for us. Let us see Christ's glory in all of this. Let us see His deity and His sovereignty and His kindness and His goodness. and. Father, let that, let that permeate in our hearts that we would rejoice in him for all that he is and all that he does. Bless the preaching of your word and may it accomplish all you desire in us. For in Jesus' name we pray and all God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> we have here one of the great beloved passages of scripture in chapter 13 of Jesus washing the disciples feet this we went over last Lord's day he left them an example that they should follow in his steps and we talked about it wasn't the fact of that they should wash each other's feet but it was it was the fact of serving one another this was a lesson for them that as the greatest that was among them which is Christ Jesus whom Paul calls the Lord of glory who takes off his outer garment he girds himself as a slave, and then he begins to wash the disciples' feet, the greatest among them serving the others. This was the example, and this is what they were to follow. And as Jesus performs this act, and then he finishes and he sits down, he asks the question, do you, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do just as I did to you. So that was the example. That was the kindness of our Lord, even washing Judas's feet. Because Judas is still there. Serving even the one who would betray him. Serving his disciples, which really and truly are, of course, this goes without argument, are inferior to him. He's the superior one. He's God in the flesh, and yet he's serving them in this way. And so this is the example that they are to follow. And he says this in verse 17, that if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. That The disciples of our Lord and following his example and following his example of of service. You're blessed when you do this. You're blessed when you prefer others before yourself. You're blessed when you look after the interest of others rather than your own interest, all of this. But then in verse 18, he says, I do not speak of all of you. There is one that is in their midst that isn't part of this blessing that's getting ready to come. And in the things that he says here, he is demonstrating once again that he is whom he claimed to be. The great I am, the one who knows all things. And he's getting ready to tell them something so that when it happens, they would be strengthened. They would know, hey, our Lord said this. He's not a helpless victim. This didn't just happen. One in in the midst uh, betraying us and then... It was unexpected, or something along that line. Jesus is demonstrating the fact that he is orchestrating all of this, that he is in control over all this, and you see that throughout this entire passage. This blessedness that he speaks of, he moves from that into identifying his betrayer, the one who is not going to receive these things. I do not speak of all of you, he says. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. These words of our Lord demonstrate he wasn't a helpless victim. He says that he chose them. And he actually says, now we're looking at this and we're saying, okay, well, he chose the 11, but he didn't choose Judas. He's, he's excluding Judas here. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. In John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus says this. Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. The Lord also chose Judas. He didn't just choose the eleven and then just think to himself. Uh, who, who, who can I get to come hang out with us? No. He chose the eleven And he chose Judas. Judas was absolutely necessary to the grand scheme of all redemptive history. And this was foretold. He quotes Psalm 41, verse 9 that he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And in that passage, I'm going to just go to that passage and read it in its entirety. That we can understand a little bit more here. Verse nine of chapter or Psalm forty-one that gives us a little bit more. That even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, Psalm forty-one. Many theologians look at Psalm forty-one as being in reference. Uh, to Ahithophel, which was David's counselor. This is penned by David. Ahithophel had allied himself with David's son Absalom in rebellion against David, had counseled Absalom on how to overcome his, his dad. And this was a close advisor of David. This was a close friend of David. And so David penned Psalm 41 in reference to his friend that betrayed him. This was a close companion. And as Jesus himself is doing the same, he is saying, uh, he's quoting this, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. This is, this is a friend. But this friend is the one who is fulfilling scripture. This, was, this, this all occurred to fulfill the scripture. It was foretold then. And Jesus is saying what was foretold then has to come to pass now. And he tells them from now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. It actually says I am he, but you notice he is in italics, meaning that it's implied, it's not actually in the Greek. He says that that you may believe that a go, a me, I am. A reference to his deity. When these things come to pass that I have told you are going to happen, you're going to know that I am, is what he's saying. And this takes us back all the way to the Old Testament in the time of Ezekiel. There are numerous things that, were in, that, that the Lord said in the book of Ezekiel. And it was numerous times in which the Lord said, When this occurs, then you will know that I am the Lord. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And Jesus is re- referring to the same thing. As the Lord was demonstrating who he was, that he was the one true God, that he was the all-powerful God in the book of Ezekiel. So Jesus is doing the very same thing. I'm telling you before it comes to pass that you may believe that I am. What a way to strengthen his disciples. A way to encourage their hearts over what he's getting ready to tell them. These things are coming to pass. They were written beforehand. It's necessary that they happen and the man is in our midst that is going to make it happen. And I'm telling you this, So that it occurs you don't go into despair. You don't become disheartened. You you don't lose yourself. But that you will remember that I said this. And again, what's he saying? He's, He's saying to his disciples, I'm not a victim. I know these things are going to happen. And it's ordained that they happen. It's planned that they happen. Now here comes the... The part that we need to look at just in, in passing here. When it comes to this relationship of Judas, was it that God simply looked down the corridor of time and knew that Judas would do this? Or was it that the Lord ordained and planned that Judas would do this? is the lord just a responder to what he knows man will do or is he the divine planner who will bring to pass all of his purpose and pleasure you see the reason why we say that especially in light of what judas is doing is because when you begin to say things like the lord ordained for judas to do exactly what he did well then you're violating judas's free will No, 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 the Lord simply knew that Judas was going to do what he did and therefore the Lord planned then. This is the man that's going to make it happen and so we're going to put him among the twelve so that we can make sure that it happens. Dear friends, our Lord is not a responder to the sovereignty of man. Our Lord is the divine planner under whose sovereignty man exists. No other way. It came to pass because the Lord ordained that it come to pass. The Lord decreed that it would come to pass. And when it comes to Judas's free will, we understand very clearly that Judas is an unbeliever. He's a devil. And Judas being used by the Lord to make these things happen, the Lord did not violate his free will, if you will, because Judas did exactly what was consistent with his fallen will, with his fallen nature. The Lord didn't violate anything. The Lord used a fallen creature whom desired to, who desired wickedness to do exactly what he did. When you get into some of these subjects here, we're talking about The relationship of God's active control in man and man's responsibility because man isn't without responsibility. And when you get into this subject, we're talking about the subject of concurrence. God's operation within created things, whether God acts directly upon them or he ordains them through secondary causes. The Lord brings to pass everything. And in fact, the disciples say and confess in Acts chapter 4 that Pontius Pilate that Herod, that the Gentiles did exactly what God's hand had predetermined for them to do. Now how does that work? Well, we have a number of examples within the scripture that we can look at and we can see how God's hand was in all of this because the one thing we don't want to see or we don't want to, uh, to lead anybody into is that God simply knows what's going to happen and so he's orchestrating all things in order to, to respond to what man's doing in order to make sure that his purpose has come to pass. When you look at things in the Old Testament, especially like Joseph being sold by his brothers, that was an evil act on the part of his brothers, without question. And yet when you read the Psalms, the Psalm says that the Lord sent Joseph before his brothers to Egypt. And the Lord takes credit for it. The Lord sent him to Egypt that many lives would be saved. And yet it was through the means of Joseph's brothers committing an evil act against him and selling him that he ended up there. But it was all by the hand of the Lord. Anytime the Lord delivered his people from their enemies, like Joshua conquering the the promised land, the people still had to fight. But the Lord is the one who gave them the victory and made certain that they overcome their enemies. We have in Nehemiah that we've been over before how the king of Assyria was moved in his heart to give them whatever it was that they needed to go back home and rebuild their temple and to go back and restore order and all of this stuff. That was by the hand of the Lord who moved the heart of the king. God orchestrated that. God ordained that. And God was blessing his people using a pagan king to do it. Because God can do that. Or when... David was fleeing Jerusalem after his son Absalom had, had taken the throne. And you have Shammai. That as David is leaving out of the city, Shammai is cursing him. And the text tells us that the Lord moved him to curse David. How the Lord put a lying spirit in the prophets of, of Ahab's, Ahab's prophets. In order that Ahab would go out to battle. That Ahab would die. As the Lord said was going to happen. Because the Lord ordained that it would happen. And yet in all of those instances in which the Lord used evil people in order to accomplish a purpose, that evil person is still held responsible for what they did. Even with Pharaoh. You think of Pharaoh, he's a great example. You know, a lot of people will say, well, the Lord only hardened Pharaoh's heart after Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Mm Mm-mm. The Lord had promised Moses he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh hardening his own heart was a response to God already hardening his heart. And he did it for the purpose, as he tells Moses, that my glory may be demonstrated, that my power would be demonstrated. And yet Pharaoh is held responsible for the things that he did. We don't pretend to know how the two go together, but we cannot diminish God's sovereignty and God's power just to try to come up with an answer that we don't violate man's free will. Man's free will stops at God's sovereign will. We need to understand that. And this is the same when it comes to Judas. The Lord ordained that Judas would do exactly what he did, is... Nature would not be violated because his nature is evil and wicked. And so the very choices that he made was consistent with his fallen nature. As God had ordained it to be. And Jesus says that when all of these things take place. And what, comes, what I'm telling you comes to pass. You're going to know that I am. And he goes on to tell his disciples In light of these things, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. There's that intimate connection with Jesus and his disciples, that as Jesus is getting ready to be betrayed, you're going to know that I am God in the flesh, and then when I send you out, those that receive you are going to receive me, receiving me for who I claim to be. There's also going to be that when they go out into the world that they're going to be enduring various things is what Christ himself does as far as the persecutions and the slanders and, and even being tortured and killed as he is. There's there's an identification there. These things are going to happen. These things are part of the, the life of a believer. And Jesus tells him that earlier on in his ministry, of course. Everything that's happening, Jesus chose the 11 that would go out as apostles, Jesus chose Judas for this specific purpose. And then, as he is identifying the betrayer, notice this. Now, going back to Psalm 41, it says, My friend, Ahithophel, was a friend of David. His friend is the one that betrayed him. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, that one of you will betray me. He became troubled in his spirit because of of the betrayal of of a close friend. He became stirred within himself. The Lord was in anguish, if you will, and it was noticeable by his disciples that he was troubled to that degree because a friend was getting ready to betray him. And he he says that language... There earlier that the one who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. This is, this is a close connection. This is an intimate fellowship here. One writer says, in ancient Semitic cultures, eating bread at the table of a superior amounted to a pledge of loyalty and to betray one with whom bread had been eaten was a gross breach of the traditions of hospitality. The idea of lifted his heel against me implies has taken cruel advantage of me or has walked out on me. Again, this isn't just someone that the Lord kept at a distance and always regarded him as an enemy. Because if you if you have an enemy that betrays you and you know that they're an enemy and you know that they're dishonest and all of these sort of things, it's not going to be very surprising to you. But if you have a close friend, someone that has that has Receive your trust, and you have that close, intimate fellowship. And they use that trust in order to to further along whatever agenda that they have, or whatever. And they have malicious intent against you. When they betray you, it pierces to the heart. It's it's a it's a feeling that you know we, we can't even explain the pain. You know that that comes over us if 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 we just think about it, of what that would be like. It's like a like like a spouse, you know, who who betrays you. That's that's the kind of pain that we're talking about, and this is exactly what Judas is doing. Judas has assumed the role of a believer. And yet, he has remained unregenerate this entire time. Hearing hearing the Lord speak, seeing the Lord's miracles, all of that was not enough to change his darkened heart. He is one that is a great example of what Hebrews 6 talks about. One who has tasted of the heavenly gift, been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. to, To taste means to experience. The one who has been enlightened, who has been granted clear knowledge. Who has experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, even in that state, that doesn't mean that they're truly believers. It means that they have assumed the role of being a believer. They are in the, the, the assembly themselves. They have a clear knowledge of the scripture because the scripture is being proclaimed. They have experienced the goodness of God. And that's not a far-fetched thing because the unbelieving experience the goodness of God all the time. We call that God's common grace. And then they fall away. It's a great example of Judas. And when it happens, it troubles our Lord, troubles him in his spirit. One of you will betray me. Disciples begin looking at one another at a loss of which one he was speaking. And the other gospel writers tell us that they're they're asking the question, is it I? Is it I? And so Peter, Peter motions over to John, this disciple whom Jesus loved. Ask him. Ask him who it is. And so John asks the Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, This is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So it had to be that if they're leaning on their side, and their feet are out this way, the, the table is in the shape of a U. If Jesus is at the head, perhaps, or near the head, he's laying on his side. John will be here on his right. Judas had to be in close proximity for Jesus to dip the morsel and give it to him. Many people think that he was at Jesus' immediate left and to be the at the place of the immediate left of the of the superior one is to be in the place of prominence in the place of honor so it very well could have been that Judas had the place of honor at this last supper in at least close proximity to Jesus if if you know some some may say well that's a little bit too far fetched that he would have the place of honor at the, at the Last Supper, but not so. If you're thinking of the kindness of God and trying to demonstrate kindness to Judas even to the very last time, it would be very consistent with our Lord to have him right at his left hand to give him the place of honor to still show kindness to him. To dip it and to give it to him was also a sign of blessing that you eat from the superior one's plate. He, he gives it to you. You eat off of of his plate? That is another sign of of blessing and kindness that that our Lord was showing to him to the very end. He He didn't grow bitter. He was troubled in his spirit, no doubt sorrowful that his friend was getting ready to do this, but he still showed him kindness and even offered him blessing until the very end. So though this was ordained by the Lord, everything being orchestrated by the Lord, it was still Judas' responsibility. It was his moral responsibility. He still held accountable because the Lord showed him kindness all the way to the end. The text tells us, so when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. This, this language here is very reminiscent throughout the uh, Gospels of, of demon possession. But it's not just any particular demon that is possessing Judas. This is Satan. Satan is doing these very things. Satan is the one who has entered into Judas. That makes certain all of these things come to pass. He is going to be directly responsible for making all of this come to pass. And yet be directly responsible as well. As far as his part of his own demise. And look at what our Lord says. After this happens. He says to him what you do. Do quickly. And it's our Lord basically saying to. To Judas who's now possessed by Satan. What you would plan to do beforehand. Do quicker. That's what he's telling him. Judas had planned to do this. Judas was already a thief. And then Satan enters into him. To bring all these other things to pass. Maybe he had planned to do this. Maybe not at that particular moment. But Jesus says what you do. Do quickly. Do it quicker than what you had planned. And what and then what happens? Judas gets up. And he goes to do exactly. What the Lord just said for him to do. There's no pushback. There's no. Well Lord I'd like to. Finish my meal here and then I'll go out. He does exactly what Christ commanded him to do. And that is another demonstration of the sovereignty of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's amazing to me as you think about our Lord Jesus and you think about him being the one that has brought creation into existence and he's the one who sustains all creation. That Jesus is the one who is in the flesh, he's with his disciples. And yet at the very same time, he is still truly God, upholding all things and sustaining all things, sustaining those that are betraying him so that they can continue their existence. It is amazing to think about those things and at the same time commanding, decreeing, do this and do it now. And they do exactly what he says to do. Why? Because he's the sovereign God. And they have no other choice but to obey his commands. That is another example, as what Nebuchadnezzar says in his, his great confession in Daniel chapter four: "None can thwart your hand or say to you, "What have you done?" None can do that. But everything goes according to plan. All of God's purposes are fulfilled as He has commanded them to be. But notice this, though. Judas gets up and he goes. But the disciples don't understand what's just happened. They think that he's going out to buy more supplies, perhaps for the feast that's getting ready to happen. And by the way, they're eating the Passover feast, but then we're talking about another feast the next day. You go back to the Old Testament. You had the Passover, and the very next day began the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So that's what they're talking about. They thought maybe he went out to to get more supplies, give some to the poor, or whatever. None of them ever suspected Judas. That, that shows just just how much of, of, the, of the role of a, a, a believer that he assumed. They didn't know. I mean, if, if he had been one that had demonstrated that kind of disloyalty already, when our Lord said, one of you is going to betray me, they all should have went, it's that guy. We know it's them. But they didn't do that. They're all looking at each other, bewildered, like, who's he talking about? Then they're questioning themselves, is it I? Is it me? They didn't suspect him. Because even tares that are among the wheat can look like wheat. And I'm using that analogy from Matthew 13. The tares representing the unbelievers and wheat representing believers. They grow together in the kingdom. They're not separated until the end. Judas was able to fool everybody except the Lord. He didn't take the Lord by surprise, as none can. But everything he did was consistently in what Christ had had desired for him to do. Because by doing this, it's going to set everything in motion for his arrest, for his trial, for his beating, for his crucifixion, that the redemption of God's people would occur. All of this is leading up to that, that the greatest example of love and the greatest example of justice is centered on the cross and Judas is used in order to make this happen. This is indeed, again, a betrayal of the most heinous kind To use his position to gain the trust of all. To be cared for, to be loved. And then to take advantage of his position and betray the Lord of glory. We're going to find out, of course, that Judas went and, as he had great remorse, not a sorrowfulness unto life, but a sorrowfulness unto death, is what the Apostle Paul says. And he goes and he hangs himself. Which, interestingly, is the very thing that Ahithophel did. Ahithophel, after, after he had betrayed David in the way that he did, and he understood that Saul, or that Absalom was not following his counsel, he goes to his house, he sets everything in order, and then the passage tells us, depending on your translation, says that he strangled himself to death. Or other translations would say he hung himself. That happened with Ahithophel. Ahithophel. Judas fulfilling the scripture of the very same thing that occurred when hung himself as well. The Lord sovereign in all of this. The Lord actively in control over all of this. Never is he a victim. Never is he caught off guard. Never is there a surprise that ever takes place here. Because the sovereign king is the one who is directing everything. But some of the things that we need to see as well. Besides looking at this and and seeing how amazing it is that you see his deity on display. And you see his humanity on display as well. And his care and his love even for Judas. And his kindness to Judas. And his blessing even offered to Judas at the very end. It's pretty amazing to see all of that. But it is a lesson back for us. Because we're to follow in those footsteps. And for those that betray us or those that that cause us hurt and pain, that there is still the responsibility of God's people to show the same kindness as what our Lord does. And we have other passages of Scripture that explain that to us as well. Even the Apostle Paul says to do good to your enemies. If they need water, give them water. If they need food, give them food. Show kindness to them, regardless if you feel like it or not. Because in doing so you're showing And demonstrating that agape love, that selfless love, that sacrificial love. I don't feel like doing this. And it is against everything in me to do this because I want to respond in this way. And yet the honor of my Lord is at stake. And therefore, I'm going to respond in kindness and in goodness and in blessing. And how difficult that is. That's not easy. That is, that is a very difficult thing because you have to wrestle with yourself. But you have to understand, though, that you, you need to wrestle with yourself in order that you don't respond in the way that's going to bring dishonor to Christ. Because when people look at you, they only know Christ through you. If they're unbelievers. And the way that you live your life out is going to either demonstrate the truthfulness of your profession or it's only going to show well, you're nothing but a hypocrite just like everybody else. You don't believe the things that you're telling me because you're not even living by them. Now we all fail. All of us fail. But the idea is we're not pretending to be something other than what we're actually trying to be. We're striving to live for the Lord. We're wrestling with ourselves daily to honor Christ. And in the moments that we do fail, which is inevitable, this is when we start back new. And this is when we continue to, to do. As we know that we should. Praising God that his mercies are new every morning. And great is his faithfulness to us. You see there as well. The unity. Of the disciples. They're not. It, you need to understand that. Their, their fellowship with one another. Is grounded in fellowship with him. It's not a matter of. I have this this friend who is friends with this guy over here. I have no ties to him. And so if something were to happen to him, it's like, oh, well, are you okay, man? I know that's your friend. You know, I know he's getting ready to have this happen in his life. Are you okay? I know it's painful for you to see him go through that. That's not how it is. Their unity and their fellowship is grounded, all of them, individually in him. So that when he says something like that and he becomes troubled in spirit, all of them are going, Lord, Lord. We're we're speechless. We don't know what to say. Who would do such a thing? Their unity that they have together is grounded in Him. And that is exactly the unity and the fellowship that must exist within the church. What brings us together is not just having common interests. What brings us together is being united in the Spirit of God and having Christ as our Lord. Our love for Him is what unites us together. Our love for Him is what brings fellowship to each other. Our love for him is what brings love to one another. That our love is grounded in truth. Our fellowship is grounded in truth. That's what brings a church together. That's what strengthens a church is is unity. Having relationship first with him. That's what brings true unity. Many churches would like to say, well, we don't like to get into doctrine. We don't like to get into things that divide. We just want to love, love, love. And that's great, but you can't have true love without... That love being grounded in truth. I love this story. And some of you probably heard it. Uh, R.C. Sproul earlier on in his ministry. He had uh, a bunch of, of evangelists over or missionaries or something like that. And I forget how many of them were there. And they came from all denominations of Methodists and Catholics and, and Baptists and all of this. And they all gathered over at his home. And he says, you know, we, they were bragging about the kind of unity that they have. Everybody gets along. We have just wonderful unity. We don't get into that other stuff. We don't get into that doctor stuff. We just, we just have great unity. And he asked one question that ended up sending every single one of them against each other. And the only thing he asked was, are you justified by faith alone? And so for the Catholic, they're like, well, no. We're justified by faith, yes, but... Plus, plus, plus. And then you go into some of the others. Well, we're justified by faith, but baptism is necessary too. Once he asked that one question, they were all at each other's throats because their unity was only superficial. They didn't have true unity because their unity was not grounded in the truth of God's word. They didn't have real fellowship because it wasn't grounded in the truth of God's word. True unity is grounded in having a relationship with him based on who he's claimed to be, based on his word. That's what brings love, true love, true unity, true fellowship, true intimacy among the people of God. That's what unites us. Another amazing thing that you see there is that the disciples are asking the question, as the other gospels tell us, they're looking at their, themselves. Is it me? You know, when things go on within a church, problems begin to arise and and things like that, which is going to happen among a body of believers, one of the very things that we do is, who is it? Who's doing it? We never really stop to say, is it I? Am I contributing to this? Have I fallen short in order to further these things along? There's no self-examination. It's always pointing to somebody else. But the disciples, the disciples didn't do that. The disciples are not pointing fingers at each other. They're, they're asking that same question to, to their very self. Is it me? It, 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 am I the one doing this? You know, when things go on within the church, it's very easy to point fingers at other people. But sometimes we need to stop and just do some self-examination too. Because we're obviously not Perfect. Everything that we say and everything that we do is not on point at all times. So what do we do when things arise and people are upset or there's, there's dissension or whatever the case is? We need to look at ourselves and say, am I part of that? Did I, did I cause that? Am I a guilty party here? And if so, what can I do then in order to restore it or to fix it? There has to be self-examination on the part of God's people. Not just in pointing the finger. And that's what they did. They're asking the question of themselves. Is it I? Sometimes we miss those things like that. In order to maintain unity within the body of Christ. These things are necessary. One. Is to. Outright. Of course acknowledge. Christ's sovereignty, Christ's kingship, Christ's control over all things. It is to to be surrounded and immersed in his truth and to rejoice with one another in that truth because as we rejoice in these truths together, we're growing together. We're growing in relationship together. A fondness that that we all have of this passage or this particular doctrine or the majesty of Christ or whatever... We're being united in that. And it's bringing us closer together as we're growing in our knowledge of God and growing closer to Him. And it's necessary that we understand that our first priority is relationship with Him that brings relationship with everybody else. And secondly, we need to do a lot of self-examination amongst ourselves. What am I doing to help resolve what's going on? Am I just sitting back pointing? Or are there things that I have contributed here that I need to, to try to restore relationship back with another? Because if we can do that, we're doing the very thing that he said before, is preferring one another above ourselves, looking after the interest of others more so than the interest of ourselves. We're looking after the interest of the church that the church would continue to grow and maintain its unity. And to maintain unity, we have to deny ourselves and prefer others above ourselves. There are a number of things to glean from that. And these few, we need to just, we need to reflect on. We need to dwell on a little. Because if we want a strong church, then these are the things that we have to continue to do. And don't get me wrong, I am so thankful For every single person here. I am so grateful that the Lord has brought us all together. Because we do have relationship. We do have joy amongst one another as we look over the scriptures together. But that shouldn't mean that we just stop. But we need to continue to pursue that. And continue to cultivate that within the church. As it was said before, a church is only as strong as its people. We want to help everyone. We want to grow ourselves. We want to help every other person here grow. That that we all seek to attain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. To the fullness of Christ's body is what the Apostle Paul says. But these are the things that we need to work on to continue to do. And I pray that the spirit of God will move us to do that very thing. To maintain a kindness even when we feel like we've been wronged seek after his truth, maintain the unity, and to do a lot of self-examinations of ourselves. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for all that it teaches us. And Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would move mightily within our hearts to achieve these things. Well, we can't do it unless the Spirit of God gives us the strength to do it and the power to do it. We need him. We can't do these things in and of ourselves. Father, forgive us where we have failed you. Forgive us for lashing out, for allowing bitterness to grow in our hearts. Forgive us for not seeking after your truth as we should. Father, thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Thank you. Thank you. That we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. Thank you. That he is faithful and just to forgive us. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father. Help us. We desire to live for you. We desire to do right by you. So we ask that you would indeed help us. And we thank you. That in your proper time. These things will be done. Correctly. Perfectly when we are united together and we stand in your presence. Thank you so much for the great hope that we have to look forward to, in which we will love you perfectly, worship you perfectly, and have perfect fellowship with one another. Be glorified in us, work in us, and do a mighty work. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen.